Uh, let's turn to Matthew 12 as we continue our series uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are going through this, if you're newer, uh, chapter by chapter. And so we're in Matthew 12. You can go ahead and turn there now. Um, I'm going to just set the table for you a little bit before we get there. Um, uh, Matthew 12 is action-packed. I mean, it is buckle your seatbelts. It is the Bible is not boring. Matthew 12, we will see the organization of a murder plot against Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he will be accused by religious leaders of actually operating his ministry in cahoots, an organization with Satan himself. And the response of Christ to the murder plot, to the accusation, uh, is strong. And I would say to you, sometimes we have this thought that love, the love of God is just, it's soft and it's wonderful. It's, sometimes the love of God is strong and it is not weak. And we will see the strong love of Jesus in response. He will call these Pharisees, this organization of uh, religious leaders who were uh, so committed to legalism and power and control, he will call them a brood of vipers. Anybody know what a brood of vipers is? Like a family of venomous snakes that are seeking to devour. Uh, he will call them a wicked and adulterous generation. Welcome to Matthew chapter 12. Are you ready for it? Um, I want to remind you of how we ended uh, Matthew 11 two weeks ago, um, because we're going to spend most of our time talking about the first 21 verses of Matthew, which is connected to how Matthew 11 ended. Famous words of Christ, this uh, radical, inclusive, gracious invitation for all people, anyone and everyone, to come to Jesus and in coming to me, if you're weary, if you're burdened, I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Like real rest for your soul. So we'll pick that up um, today as well, beginning in Matthew 12. Here's the outline of the chapter. Uh, if we could pull that up. Uh, kind of four kind of quick hitter things. It could really, we could do a four-week series on Matthew 12. I'm going to spend most of our time on Roman numeral one, but I do want to kind of give a bit of a flyover of uh, Roman numeral two, three, and four, uh, accusations about Jesus and Satan, uh, demands for a sign, Ace of Base, anyone, Not kid of the 90s? Oh, yes. yes, Ace of Base. You young people, y'all don't know about Ace of Base, but they were dope <laughs> back in the day. Um, or, I need a sign. To let me know you're here. <laughs> Land the plane, Swain. Uh, and then the last five verses, um, a spiritual family is greater uh, than our blood family. Um, so I'm going to do this. We're going to do two, three, and four, and then we're going to loop back to one. Are you guys down for that? Are you all with me right now? So let's go to Roman numeral two first. There was accusations from the religious leaders about Jesus being in like partnership with Satan himself. That is what verses 22 to 37 is about. We're not gonna read those verses, but here's the story. Jesus healed someone that was blind and mute. And in doing so, 
he was accused of partnering with Satan himself and doing the work of healing. And the accusation could not have been more blasphemous in saying that Jesus himself was operating in alignment with Satan. It's where we get this famous phrase. So putting this famous phrase, excuse me, in the context, and you know this phrase, Jesus said these words in this, in this passage, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand, right? You know, you know that verse. It's, this is the context for it. This is when he says it. Let me just simplify that phrase for you. Uh, if I was explaining this to Michaela, my 10-year-old, I would say, here's what that means, Michaela. Satan bad. Jesus, God, healing good. You don't see the goodness of God operating and healing someone and say that that work is in alignment with bad, Satan, evil, right? It's like literally like uh, um, Sports Center when, I don't know, this is like NFL stuff and they would show clips and then they would be, come on, man. Anybody know those? Because they don't do those clips anymore. But they do. So they do them. Yeah, my favorite one is... Uh, Chris Carter, the way he says, come on, man. I love that. Anyway, I think that's what Jesus is saying to the religious leadership. Like, you get, you, like literally, you got to be kidding me right now. Like, that's, that's what you're getting out of me moving in mercy and compassion. Um, that's in the context of verses 22 to 37. And then there's this verse that can trip people up. And so I just want to zone in on verse 31 briefly with you for a moment. In the context of Jesus being accused of operating on behalf of Satan, he says this to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are accusing him, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is kind of known in like church culture language as the unforgivable sin. Like that's where, that's where we get that from is this verse. And I just, wanna, I just wanna help anyone in this room that might have ever come to this verse or maybe even today, they come to this verse and they, they feel, uh, it scares them, it makes them feel anxious. And then they ask themselves this question, could, could I have possibly ever in the future, could I commit the unforgivable sin? So I want to speak to that just for a moment, as clear as I can. If you are asking that question, you have not, you cannot, you won't. The warning was to people who were wholly rejecting Jesus as Messiah, and so if you are a person, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he is the Lord, you are saved, okay? And so this is not a verse for believers to get tripped up in fear and anxiety because we know that the perfect love of Jesus casts out all fear, 1 John 4. So I just I want us to know that this is for those specifically to those Pharisees, those blasphemous, manipulative, legalistic 
Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus. That's who he gives this verse to. This is the gospel message, the good news, right? The gospel message of Jesus is good news. And if it's good news, it ought to feel and sound like good news. And it's this. All is forgiven when you come to Jesus for salvation. He takes our sin. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, one of my Isaac's verses. And he remembers it. Anybody know? He remembers it. No more. Okay? So let's just contextually understand this, that it's not for believers who call Jesus Lord. Jesus would say, Matthew 26, 28, later in Matthew, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. Amen? Okay. Next bullet point is the demands for a sign. Demands for a sign, verses 38 to 45. Um, Has anyone here in your life just been in a situation, you're, you're traversing through uh, your journey in life, and you were, there was some confusion around it, maybe some, um, some angst around it, and just in a genuine way, it's like, God, just give me a, just, God, would you just give me a sign? Anyone in the room? Yep. A few of us here. There's a lot more in the first service. Maybe they were just more honest in the second <laughs> service. Um, when we ask that question, I think there's an honest, an honest seeking for God's direction. And it usually comes out of a place of, I'm nervous or I'm unsure. And so when we, when we ask that question, you know, like I can remember being a kid and asking God to give me a sign, and I, I literally asked for a star to go across the sky. It's kind of silly. It, it didn't happen, right? But it's just, it was an honest, like I was genuinely, I was pursuing the Lord to that degree. Let, let, me, let me just say that what we're going to see in this passage is not that. It's not an honest seeking after God to give a sign because I need some clarity in my life. That's not what's in these verses, these manipulative, blasphemous, legalistic, power-hungry, controlling Pharisees ask Jesus for a miraculous sign for a totally different reason. The question itself reveals their total rejection of him as Messiah, and Jesus rebukes them for it. And in verse 39, that's where Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Their demand for a sign shows their obvious rejection of Jesus um, because he had already given them example after example, after example of his Messiahship, that I'm not only proclaiming this, but I'm showing you miracle on miracle on miracle. And then they demand him to give them another sign. And so they are adulterous because they are professing to belong to God and believe in God and follow God, but they are openly rejecting him as Messiah. All right. Last one, and then we'll get to the crux of our message. Spiritual family uh, greater than blood family. The last five verses. Um, in these verses, um, it's the reality of Jesus saying, whoever is with me is part of my family. You're my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. Literally what he says in verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Anyone ever ask this question? In a season, like give me a sign, 
but also like, also God, I, I need to know what your will is for me. Anybody ever asked that question? What's your will for my life? And I wanna simplify that for us this morning. God's will for you is Jesus. Now, is there a season in life, is there direction from the Lord about this decision or that decision? Should I take this job? Should I date this person? Should I move to this town? Certainly, I think there are openings for us scripturally and in, and the, and many counselors and direction to feel like the Lord might be leading us somewhere. I think that's absolutely um, part of the journey. But I just want to simplify it for you. God's will for you is to receive Jesus as Messiah. His will for you is to come under the blood of his atonement so that you would know that you have an eternal security in your life. Um, there's a passage, Ephesians uh, 1, 3 to 11. I just want to bring this up, write this down. Uh, I think there's some real clarity around God's will in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 11. So I'm not going to read those, but um, I think what Ephesians 1, 3 to 11 just says is Jesus is God's will for us, to us and then through us to the world who needs hope. Um, and then Jesus says, when you do the will of my Father, when you come under me as God's Messiah, you are operating in God's will for your life and we are part of the same family, amen? All right, so let's go back to one, verses one to 21, and this is where, where we'll start reading. Um, accusations against Jesus about Sabbath rest. Um, and let me just, let me say it this way. The Jewish leaders that accuse him of breaking the law, the, like the Mosaic law in these verses, when they think about rest, they're thinking about the Sabbath day, Saturday. Um, and the context there for, for, for us to understand is in, when you go all the way back to Genesis, and God created the heavens and the earth, and you see that unfold. On day seven, God did what? He rested. And so as a gift to his people, God gave a day of rest as a gift so that people one day a week could be free of toil and to worship God and to commune with the family of God. It was a gift that God gave. And religion changed it to a rule and a burden. It was the gift of God, and religion turned it into a rule, which is what religion always does. Religion takes the gifts of God, and then, then they create rule on rule on rule. And that's what's happening in the confrontation that we're going to see between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let me get started in verses 1 and 2. Put on, uh, my college roommate is Jason right here, and I, have, I, I need to come hug you right now actually. He's my college roommate, one of my best friends. I haven't seen him in a long time. I saw him during worship, and you're going to laugh at me. I have to wear these now, Jay. Do you wear these when you preach? No? Jason's a church planner and a pastor in California, and we get to fellowship today. He's in town, so I'm so excited. But this is new for me, Jay. It looks good? I can't see you right now. You're all fuzzy, but when I turn to the Bible, I'll be able to read it a little bit better. So anyway, I'm so glad to have you with us today, Jay. Uh, I like to think that when I was in college, by the way, I was a pretty decent basketball player, and not many people could guard me, but he could always guard me. 
He could lock me down. Remember those days? We were younger then. <laughs> yeah. All right, Matthew 12, 1 to 2. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're, do, they're breaking the rules on Saturday by eating some grain in this field. Um, here's, here's the truth about what was happening. Jesus and his disciples did not actually break the Mosaic law in eating grain on that day. What they, what they were breaking was the traditions of how the law was interpreted by the Pharisees. They weren't actually breaking the Mosaic law. They were, they were bumping up against the traditions of man. Specific to this situation, the Mosaic law actually allowed travelers to do what Jesus and his disciples were doing. And if you want a cross-reference for that, it's Deuteronomy 23, 25. It, it made an opening for that to happen. And what they, so what they were doing was they were violating the interpretation and man-made traditions. And so they get the confrontation from the Pharisees. And then Jesus, here's Jesus' response, verses 3 to 8. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. I'll explain that in a second, what that is. Which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one, speaking of himself, that one greater than the temple is here. If you have known what these words mean, and he quotes the, uh, the minor prophet Hosea, if you had only known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. And then he has a mic drop moment in the face of the opposition, and he says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Consecrated bread was 12 loaves of bread that was in the temple. And the loaves of bread were sacred to God. And only the priests could eat the bread. And so they rotated the bread every week. And only the priests were allowed to eat the bread. And the bread symbolized God's gift of life. I'm the bread of life as God's gift of life given to the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus just tells a story that the Pharisees would have known from the Old Testament, a story when David and his men were so hungry and they were such in extreme need, their lives depended on the consecrated bread and they ate the consecrated bread. And no blame was put on David or on the priest because their need because mercy overruled the regulation. Are you with me right now? 
And Jesus is simply saying to them, this is the exact same situation that's happening here. And you're quibbling over this infringement of this tradition instead of having mercy. And then he uses this famous phrase from Hosea in verse seven, in the kingdom of God, mercy and compassion is more important than regulations and sacrifices. And you're holding us to your man-made traditions and rules. And I'm here to tell you, and he's loving them, but it's strong, it ain't weak. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll do whatever I want on this day. Know that. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. (laughs) He didn't say that. He didn't say that. I'm just trying to, you know, that was for dramatic effect. (laughs) He calls him out. And he's in this confrontation. And the confrontation follows him. Verses 9 to 14, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue their place of worship, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, how will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Right? Buckle your seatbelts. Did you know that there was no prohibition in the Mosaic law, prohibiting healing on the Sabbath. It's not there. They created it. So in example one, in verses three to eight, we have in that example, a gross misinterpretation of why God gave the Sabbath to begin with as a gift, not a rule. And example number two In verses 9 to 14, you have a totally created new tradition of their own doing that's nowhere in the scripture. And if you think that this sort of thing is just in this story and not alive and well today, think again. And some of you have grown up in churches and traditions where you're like, well, it wasn't that, but I remember this. Just one brief story in my own life, I mean... I mean, I grew up in a more traditional environment, and uh, my grandparents dressed, you know, Sunday best. You dressed your Sunday best. And I used to go to battle with my mom over turtlenecks. (laughs) Ain't nobody sticking a turtleneck on this guy. And I know I think the mock turtleneck is like kind of in style. I mean, if you were here on Christmas Eve, Spada looked pretty dope in a mock turtleneck. But I I ain't wearing no turtleneck. Right, And I'm also probably on very rare occasions I'm going to tuck my shirt in. You know that about me. Uh, I will wear a tie at a wedding only if the groom is wearing a tie. And if he ain't wearing a tie, I ain't wearing no tie. (laughs) And when God gives me the holy privilege of speaking at a celebration of life service, I'll wear a tie. 
But otherwise, this is what you get. And I'm on staff at a church, and me and my buddy, and he, he dressed up more than me. He wore jeans, but he would always wear like a coat, but it's like a casual coat with untucked and jeans, but a coat, but no tie. Yeah, with me right now? He looked dope. But I, I just, this is what you get with me. And there was a gentleman in our church, and he set a meeting with us, and he challenged us to wear a, a coat and a tie every Sunday because it wasn't reverent for us to open God's word and teach without wearing a tie. And we asked him politely but strongly, could you help us know where that is in the scripture? It's not in the scripture. It's his tradition. And then he put his tradition on us. And he, he left the church over it because we wouldn't wear a tie. And for me, it's like, if you want to wear a tie here, wear a tie. I think it looks sharp. I'm just not going to wear one. But you're welcome to wear one, right? But not a, none of you do. And it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Because we're not going to play that game where we're judging each other on how we're dressing here. Amen to that? All right. Jesus, he goes into the synagogue and a man with this withered hand was already there, planted there, probably planted there. Um, the same account of this story is in uh, Mark picks it up and Luke picks it up. And they give, they give us a little bit more, um, more of the story than Matthew does. And what they tell us in their accounts is that the Pharisees sat watching the man and watching Jesus to see whether he would dare heal him on the Sabbath. It was a setup to see if he would dare break one of their human man-made traditions. And Jesus knew. He knew the trap. And he went straight for it because his love is not weak, it's strong, and because mercy triumphs over judgment. And I love Mark's account in Mark 3. Jesus did this. It wasn't like he went to this man. It's like, hey, I love you, but I don't want to like stir the thing up here today, so I'm just going to heal you over here in the quiet. No, he, he got the man, and he says, it says in Mark 3, 3, stand up here in front of everyone. Like, come right up here, right in front of everyone. Jesus ain't playing. He ain't playing. He came to set prisoners free, period. Mark 3, 5, he looked around, Jesus looked around in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Let me tell you something. Jesus did not come to help the religious strengthen their traditions and their rules. That's not why he came. Instead, in this story, he is exposing their hypocrisy and their greed for power and control, and he's coming against their legalism. Think about this. The same men who were sitting there waiting, will he dare heal this guy? The same men who called healing on the Sabbath a violation of God's law, even though it wasn't, it was their own man-made tradition. The same men who called healing on the Sabbath a violation of God's law saw, saw no sin and plotting a murder on the same day. That's messed up, right? Can we do that's messed up? That is messed. That is blindness. Religion breeds that kind of hypocrisy. 
and judgment toward people who will not do what we tell them that they must do. And religion, it messes people up. And we gotta release, we gotta release our religious traditions and rules to be free in Christ, church. Amen? Mercy triumphs over judgment every single time. Churches, I know, I know from my life stories, church if, churches have split over worship preference. Like how we play and what we play and what we sing and how it goes up here, churches divide over it. And I go, you got to be kidding me right now. Churches have divided over carpet color, you guys. Let me just say this. I hate the red carpet in this room. <laughs> I haven't liked it from the moment I saw it. I mean, I come down here and I'm like, man, we really need to vacuum this because it shows everything. And one of the first things we're going to do in the sanctuary is we're going to paint that nasty mustard yellow wall in the back. And we're going to rip this red carpet out and we're going to get some better looking carpet in here. Right? But the reality is, I don't care about the carpet that much. Like I have a preference, but like we're going to divide a church over this. And I just go, you've got to, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Churches have split over issues that have nothing to do with Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love. To which I go, do you think that's a witness of Jesus and the mercy and the freedom and the love of the gospel? Do you think that's a witness to people? Hey, come and be a part of us. We can't get along about how we sing songs in our carpet color, but we have joy and love and abundant life. We're actually biting and devouring each other. God, it's not Jesus. That's not what he's called us to be a part of. Anyone? Are we with me right now? Freedom isn't in religion. Freedom is only found in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has removed the legalistic burden of the Sabbath day, and he has given us himself. Jesus is your Sabbath. Not checking boxes, doing this, that, and the other. Jesus is your Sabbath. Jesus is your rest. He is your peace. Jesus isn't religion. Jesus is mercy and grace that forgives and liberates and heals and restores people like me and like you. And he is the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies of true justice, hope, and victory. And in the moment that they began to accuse him and plot a murder, he fulfills a prophecy. And it's a prophecy from Isaiah, which is the rest of our passage, verses 15 to 21. Aware of this, aware that they were plotting to murder him. Verse 15, Jesus withdrew from that place Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. 
He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. Not just the Jewish nation, but the nations in the name of Jesus will put their hope. The ministry of Jesus is to be distinguished by mercy and grace and love, period. And a person may have a broken story, perhaps a dim understanding or a weak light. Jesus is the redeemer of that story. A person might be suffering or discouraged or afraid or depressed or anxious. Jesus restores. Jesus rekindles fire to the wick. And he restores the bruised reed to the rest and the peace of his shalom. Verse 20, I believe, is a precious promise to any who are about to give up. And so I proclaim the victory and the peace and the rest of Jesus, the redemption and the restoration of Jesus to any person who might be in this room who feels on the verge of giving up and you walked in here today and you're like, God, I just need a sign. I'm telling you right now, this is your sign. This message is your, is your sign. Not me, the message of Jesus, his hope, his restoration, his redemption, this message. It says in his name, in his name, the nations will put their hope. The question is, do you? Do you put your hope in the name? The person, the work, the cross, the resurrection of Christ. Do you put your hope in his name, in his forgiveness, in his love, in his peace that passes understanding? I, I don't know of any other place to lead you to hope. And so, I speak the name of Jesus and I lead you only to Jesus. He is the Lord of your rest and he himself is your peace and shalom. He is the answer to all our questions. And you don't have to go looking for him because he's not hiding from you. He is actually the one that's coming and looking for you now in this moment. And his message is, come to me. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're tired, if you're depressed, if you're addicted, if you're on the verge of giving up hope, don't give up hope. I'm right here. I'm right here. And my invitation for you is the life that I am giving you. Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Um, worship team, you can come back up. There's a Mercy Me song out right now. Um, it's about hope. Uh, I don't know the name of it. 
Anybody know the name of it? He sings it with his son. It's okay that you don't know it. But there's a line in the song, and it just simply says, when we have hope, we have all we need. I had this, that second song, what's the name of that second song? Yeah, yeah, we did this morning. Yeah, and I don't know why I, had, I didn't have this thought in the first service, but I had this thought in the second service, like, like I, I need people to sing that song at my, cel- I don't know why I had this thought, but I need people to sing that song at my celebration of life service. I'm not looking to go anywhere anytime soon, by the way, <laughs> but we're not promised tomorrow. And it's, it's so interesting for me because, like, I've officiated, gosh, I don't know, 50, 50 75, I don't know, so, so many weddings. And before we moved here to Plant Two Rivers Church, at previous places where I've been a pastor, I have officiated and spoken the hope of the gospel at Celebration of Life Services. And I haven't spoken at a funeral since I moved to Fort Collins. And I'm so glad. But we all know that, we all know that our life is a breath, right? We know that. Like, unless Jesus returns in the way that he's going to return in Revelation 19 which I love before we go from this life to the next? Like, do we really believe in this message? I, I do, and I need you to, and I want you to, and I want us to encourage us each other with these things. I just find it so remarkable that it's been 10 years and I haven't officiated a funeral. And I'm just saying this because we have to accept life on life's terms. I love you, and I want, to, I want us to be reminded of the truth. We're going to gather in this room for a celebration of life service for someone in this church family, and we're going to weep, and we're going to rejoice. And I don't trust the Lord's sovereignty, but when we have hope, we have all we need. And that we can say, whether we're in a season of grief or we're grieving or in a season of life is going in a way that I hoped it would go, that we will sing the name of Jesus. Because the church is called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and everywhere in between. And the constant of that reality is Jesus the Christ. And in his name, we place our hope. Amen. We're going to worship. I think this last song, I think you're going to, I think this place is going to come, I I think the roof's going to blow off. But this first song is more contemplative. 
about being still and having hope even when things are really hard. And I think it's a kind of a worship set that allows us to hold lament and joy. Lament and joy. And as we do that, we're also going to get to hold lament and joy with the elements of communion. And so you have some elements in your hymnal rack in front of you. And Jesus told the church, like, when you gather, do this in remembrance of me, like, receive the bread of life. Be reminded that my blood and my blood, there is forgiveness. And so we're going to do that. And you are free to receive the elements of communion at any point as we sing these songs. If you're on the front row, just ask someone behind you to give you one. And you are free to receive those elements as you are ready to do that. Um, you are free to stand. You are free to remain seated. Let's respond in worship to the Lord.